Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Vigil Trivedi, the author of Breath from Salt, a deadly genetic disease, a new era in science, and the patients and families who changed medicine forever. Cystic fibrosis was once a mysterious disease that killed infants and children. Now it could be the key to the healing of millions with genetic diseases of every type, from Alzheimer's to Parkinson's to diabetes and sickle cell anemia. From science writer Bijal Trivedi, Breath from Salt chronicles the riveting saga of cystic fibrosis. From its ancient origins to its identification, in the dank autopsy room of hospital basement, and from the cystic fibrosis genes celebrated status as one of the first human disease genes ever discovered, to the groundbreaking targeted genetic therapies that now promise to cure it. Told from the perspectives of the patients, families, physicians, scientists, and philanthropists fighting on the front lines, Breath from Salt is a remarkable story of unlikely scientific and medical first of setbacks and successes, and of people who refuse to give up hope, and a fascinating peek into the future of genetics and medicine. Well, Vigil, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Well, as we're going through some really unprecedented times during the global pandemic, hopefully towards the end of it, I say very cautiously, And I would like to ask, how has it influenced you and your work? Well, it's influenced me quite a bit because I am now the uh, senior science editor at National Geographic. So I have, in the last few months, been covering COVID extensively. So it, 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 I am living and breathing this pandemic. So do you also manage other writers? How did you find that? Yes. Um, so I manage freelancers. Uh, so since March, I've been at National Geographic. And prior to that, I was at The Conversation. Uh, so I was working with academics for the past year to write stories all about COVID, the virus, the pandemic, uh, health precautions, new drugs. So I've been... Uh, just following COVID for the last year. Did you find it uh, straightforward to switch from your uh, normally uh, normally covered topics? Um, you know, this is the first pandemic I've covered. Uh, and before this, I was focused a lot on biomedical technology and and genetic diseases. So it was a little different, but, you know, in it's all in the same vein for me. 
And you yourself, did you develop some sort of skills or some hobbies during the pandemic? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, my biggest skill is eating all the things that my daughter makes during the pandemic because she has turned into quite the pastry chef. Um, but I, I guess I've just done a little more gardening than I anticipated. Um, I had originally hoped to be on trips promoting my book, Breath from Salt, and talking with groups around the country. But um, like many authors that released a book during the pandemic, uh, that hasn't happened. So very happy to talk to you. <laughs> Excellent. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, I was a biochemistry major in college, and um, I was sort of on the, the PhD track. Uh, so after college, I went to MIT to do um, a job for a couple of years working on the Genome Project in the very early stages of the Genome Project. And then after that, I went to graduate school to study molecular genetics. And it was about halfway through my PhD program that I decided that I would rather become a science journalist than a scientist. So I sort of wrapped up a master's degree and applied to science journalism school at New York University. And I switched tracks and, and have been a journalist ever since. Wow, that's really interesting, this 180 degrees turn uh, <laughs> during your program. So I'm just wondering, maybe you can give us some advice for the people who are actually considering changing, uh, because I can understand that it can be really hard for people to quit during the PhD, even if they don't really find the, the place yeah, it was it was a difficult decision because I I absolutely love science. Uh, there was there's nothing that I would rather read about or learn about or talk about. But I found that you know just focusing on a very specific project in the lab for years and years and years um, was not exactly my cup of tea. I was in a Drosophila lab studying fruit flies and the genetics of fruit flies. And what actually made me change was when I read about the cloning of Dolly the sheep in the 90s. And I thought that was such an amazing story that um, I decided I'd be better as a storyteller, a science storyteller than a scientist. So it was a difficult leap, but I think, you know, my love for science and the material and my fascination with the people who are doing the science, um, that was sort of how I compensated psychologically mm -hmm. for, for leaving my PhD program. And of course, you can communicate science really masterfully. And were you always interested in bringing science uh, to, to people? Yes, I was, because I think one of um, and this is going back to my my youth, so, so to speak. But when I grew up in Australia, I was particularly excited about uh, Voyager going past Jupiter and Saturn. Um, and this was in the 70s and actually maybe the early 80s. I can't quite remember. 
Um, but I was absolutely fascinated by space travel and by space. And so I got in touch with researchers at the Tidbinbilla tracking station um, just outside the Australian capital of Canberra. And I, I started, you know, corresponding with them and they would send me the latest pictures of Jupiter and Saturn that were literally hot off the press from the Voyager spacecraft. And I would tell my classmates in elementary school about these fantastic voyages and discoveries that were happening. So I guess I was always in that mode and I love writing. Um, so I guess the two passions just came together naturally. It took a, it took a little while, but you know, they, they found each other. Yeah, for sure. And uh, you're really courageous to follow your passions. So maybe you have some advice to our young career researchers who may be thinking about switching careers, but a bit unsure. I would suggest, and and by the way, I'm not courageous at all. It took me a long time to make the leap. <laughs> um, but what I would suggest is if the, if you're interested in science communication, Try doing some internship for a newspaper or a magazine or a website and start writing about science. Um, an another nice way to begin in sort of a, a low-stress capacity is also to start your own science blog and, and write about the science that you find really exciting and interview people and, and perhaps get into some multimedia with doing video um, interviews of the scientists and the people involved. And I think that can be pretty compelling. And But working with experienced journalists is key. So if you can get an internship at, at a local paper website, that's really the way to figure out whether this is what you want before you quit your PhD program. <laughs> oh, that's an excellent advice. <laughs> So uh, can you tell us how come, how did you come to writing your latest book, The Breath from Salt? Uh, Breath from Salt is my first book. And it actually, you know, I, I mentioned that I didn't want to be stuck in a lab working on one project for years and years. Well, it, <laughs> Breath from Salt mm -hmm. actually took me eight years to write um, while I was, you know, holding a day job in, in other capacities. But um, what happened was uh, an editor at Discover Magazine assigned me to write about a new drug, and the new drug was called Kaleidico. And this drug was for just 4% of cystic fibrosis patients who had this disease. And I just thought that was so strange. You know, why would a pharmaceutical company be interested in making a drug for a rare disease? And 4% of the people with this rare disease, it just, it didn't make sense to me. So I started reporting and meeting scientists who were working on this disease, which is a, a fatal inherited lung disease, which doesn't actually, doesn't just affect your lungs, it affects your whole body. And while I was doing the reporting, I met a couple, uh, Joe and Kathy O'Donnell, and they live in Boston, and their son died in 1986 from cystic fibrosis. And he was only 12 years old. 
And their story was so moving to me and their quest to find a treatment for this disease so that other families wouldn't suffer. Their quest was so moving and so selfless that I kept talking to them. And, you know, after a three-hour interview with them, I, I realized that this had to be my first book. I had to tell this story of how, you know, the drugs for cystic fibrosis came about, because I think it's a story that offers hope and and solace to people suffering from many, many diseases. This is not a story just about cystic fibrosis, but it's more about how medicine has evolved over the last 50 years and how this amazing community was able to convince a pharmaceutical company to uh, manufacture, to discover new types of drugs and manufacture um, treatments for this population. So from the scientific point of view, can you describe what exactly is cystic fibrosis? Sure. So cystic fibrosis is a rare inherited genetic disease. So to get this disease, you have to get one bad gene from your mother and one bad gene from your father. And the cystic fibrosis gene makes a little protein that goes into just about every cell in your body and the, the protein is shaped like a donut, and it's on the outer surface of your cell, and it's sort of a gateway for um, a molecule, not a molecule, an ion called chloride to move in and out of the cell. And so chloride you might be familiar with because it's half of the molecule that makes up table salt. So table salt is sodium chloride, and this protein lets the chloride part of the salt molecule in and out of the cell. So when you have this disease, that little tunnel, that donut-shaped protein is either missing from the surface of your cell or it is squished and not working properly. So it blocks the movement of chloride. And when that happens, the results are devastating. It basically causes a salt imbalance in the whole body that leads to sticky mucus building up in your lungs. And that's the most least lethal component of this disease. Because when you have the mucus in your lungs should be like watery and, and like a river and flowing like a river. But when you have this disease, the mucus is sticky and it's thick, it clogs up the really tiny airways in your lungs, it lets bacteria live in there. And when the bacteria live in there, it starts festering, causing infections, and your immune system goes into sort of a war-like mode. And it starts blasting the bacteria, but at the same time, it's damaging and destroying lung tissue. So most often, cystic fibrosis patients die from pneumonias of the lung because they've sustained so much damage and their lungs are in such bad shape. But this disease also affects their ability to absorb nutrients in their guts. It harms the liver. It causes the sweat to be super salty. It affects the pancreas. And as a result, many of these patients also develop cystic fibrosis-related diabetes as part of this disease. 
And when was uh, cystic fibrosis first uh, discovered? Um, well, this is this is a great story because cystic fibrosis was discovered and characterized in 1938. And the woman, and that's right, the woman who characterized it, mm. her name was Dorothy Anderson. And she was this really severe looking woman with this Victorian bun. She never wore makeup. She was very serious. And she was a real rarity at the time because... In, 19, in the 1930s, only about 5% of physicians were women. And women were, you know, patients were generally discouraged from going to a female physician. So not only did she have a medical degree, but she got her PhD in pathology because she was determined to have a career in medicine. And so she became a pathologist and started doing autopsies at what is now Columbia University. And she was in the basement doing um, an autopsy on this little girl who had died. And she had been diagnosed with celiac disease, which is actually, um, it's an allergy to wheat. But as Dorothy Anderson was doing this autopsy, she saw all these bizarre um, anatomical differences that, that didn't align with having celiac disease. And as she kept up her research, she realized that she had come across a new disease, which she characterized as cystic fibrosis of the pancreas. And later on, as more scientists began to study this, they realized It was cystic fibrosis, but it wasn't just restricted to the pancreas. The disease really ravaged the whole body. Um, but she was an amazing scientist. You know, she doesn't doesn't get the credit that she is due um, for for the work that she did. Yeah, for sure. And she sounds uh, like a person with a really singular mind yeah, was able was... to make such a discovery. Yeah, she, um, you know, she was surrounded by male physicians and she was never unnerved. In fact, she was pretty unnerving herself. And um, it's kind of ironic because I talked to some of her students um, who are now quite old, obviously, but they mm. said that when she was teaching them in the lab, you know, they would be on a microscope and she'd be looking through one eyepiece. They would be looking on the opposite the side of the table with the other eyepiece and she, she was a chain smoker. So as she was looking through mm -hmm. the microscope, she had a cigarette dangling out of her mouth all the time, puffing away and the smoke, you know, filling the room when people were trying to look through the microscope. <laughs> so she was, she was a real character, really amazing woman. So that was all before the genetic revolution overall. Yes. Long and before. How, yeah. And how did our understanding of cystic fibrosis evolve from there? Well, for a long time. Um, so she, she characterized the disease in 1938. But for many, many years, you know, people just didn't know about it. Pediatricians, the ones who needed to know about it, because at the time, you know, for a child born in 1938 with this disease, there was pretty much no hope. And a lot of the children died within the first year of life um, because mm -hmm. this disease was so severe. And, you know, during the 30s and the 40s, she started to get the word out to pediatricians around the country um, and tell them about this really rare disease. 
Um, but, you know, one of the tricky things was diagnosing it. And so she had to figure out a test that would enable doctors to diagnose this disease, which otherwise just looked like celiac disease. Because when the children would come in, the mothers would complain, oh, these children are eating all the time. These babies are, are nursing all the time, but they're not gaining any weight. And they keep throwing up and they have very foul smelling stool. What she realized was that um, because the pancreas was completely ravaged and destroyed, um, it couldn't deliver all the digestive enzymes that it normally manufactures. So the job of the pancreas, or one of the jobs of the pancreas, is to make digestive enzymes and to deliver them into the intestine um, so that they mix with the food, digest the food, and then the body can absorb nutrients. But in children with cystic fibrosis, the pancreas was destroyed. It wasn't making those enzymes. And so food was passing through the gut completely undigested, which is why it was so foul smelling. And it was also the reason that the children couldn't extract any nutrients. Um, so she designed a test, and this is a pretty, pretty rough test for a newborn. Um, or, or an infant, you know, um, she would put a, a tiny, very narrow tube, either through the nose or the mouth, feed it down the esophagus into the stomach, pass it through the stomach and put it in the beginning of their gut. Um, so just a region called the duodenum. And she would extract a little bit of fluid. And then she would analyze the fluid and see if there were any digestive enzymes in there. And if there were not, the children likely had, the child likely had cystic fibrosis. So you can imagine this is a pretty awful thing to do to either, you know, any little kid, but it, it was particularly mm. difficult, you know, for six months old or one year old. Um, and so this was the only test for about, oh, I, I would say about, eight years after she discovered the disease. So it was difficult to diagnose. It was a weird test that only a few people were able to perform. And, you know, we didn't have the internet back in the thirties and forties. Mm -hmm. So it was really hard you know, to, to spread news of this disease or to let populations know. So, you know, after that, it wasn't until the 1950s, when a group of really desperate parents got together and they formed the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. Um, and basically, you know, it was just four couples. And they, they realized, you know, one of whom was a pediatrician whose two children were sick with this disease. And they realized that unless they began funding a ton of research no one would ever figure out the cause of this disease and no one would ever be able to find a cure or a treatment. So in 1955, this foundation became dedicated to fundraising so that they could fund science um, to, to figure out the cause of this disease. So that was really sort of the beginning stage of, of research into cystic fibrosis. That's amazing. So we went from biochemistry and uh, um, then we had this, uh, not only patient, but uh, families who are really sort of uh, trying to get uh, the word out because it's such a rare disease. 
and how did we um, how did we realize that it was a genetic disease? Um, so early on, when when Dorothy Anderson was seeing patients um, at Columbia University, um, she started to suspect it um, because in in a in notes at the end of those academic papers, there were um, little uh, sort of post-texts that said, you know, this might be something that, that is transmitted in families because often if a mother's child, uh, if a mother has one child with this disease, it's not uncommon to see a second or third child who also has the disease. So she had some idea that it was a genetic disease back then, but it wasn't until much later um, that they began to be able to track the disease. So if there was one child born in the family, Dorothy Anderson would actually say to the mother, if you're planning to have other children, um, once that child is born, bring them to me so I can test them for this disease. Uh, so that's how it happened in the beginning. Um, but it wasn't really until the gene was discovered in 1989 that you could actually test for the mutation and, um, you know, really follow the transmission of the disease from, from parent to child. So this is a recessive mutation, is that right? That's right. So um, a recessive mutation, so it takes two bad copies of the cystic fibrosis gene to cause the disease. If you just have one bad copy, that means you're a carrier and you don't actually show any symptoms. And that's, you know, in a way, that's what makes the disease so insidious because you can have two carriers who have absolutely no idea that, you know, they've got anything wrong with them. And if they marry and have children, um, you know, there's a one in four chance that that child will receive a bad gene from both parents and have the disease. Um, so those are pretty high odds, um, 25% chance. So uh, going back to your previous description of this protein that goes bad, so it looks like a donut, right, to uh, yes. allow uh, ions to pass through. But mutation can affect different parts of it, can it? Or is it just one specific mutation? Ah, so this over the uh, over the past say thirty years, they have discovered more than two thousand mutations in the cystic fibrosis gene, and um, many of these. I mean, many of these can be harmless, but um, there are several mutations that are responsible for causing the disease in about seventy percent of patients. And this mutation, it's called, I mean, none of these names are very memorable <laughs> unless mm. you're actually within the scientific community or the community of patients, but it's called um, F508-DEL. So basically um, what that means is that at the 508 position of this protein's code, there is a missing amino acid. And what that does is this is a pretty long protein. Um, more than a thousand amino acids long. But if you lose this particular amino acid at position 508, then what that does is the protein doesn't form its proper shape. 
And instead, it sort of, it doesn't even reach the surface. It's made inside the cell. It folds. It, it, it folds a bad shape. And the machinery in the cell is um, designed to trash bad protein. So if you make a protein that's not folded correctly, there are basically cleanup crews in the cell that will grab that protein and destroy it. Um, so what happens is that in the case where this badly folded protein actually is able to make it to the surface of the cell, it doesn't function properly. It doesn't open properly. Um, and each one of the mutations in this gene can cause a bad folding in, in, a, in a different way. So if you think about um, you know, um, a shirt, for example, you can misfold a shirt in many hundreds of ways and cause crumples in this shirt. Um, but, you know, certain crumples are worse than others and, and they'll prevent the shirt from working, I guess you could say. So, <laughs> you know, um, it's, you know, it's a, you know, this was once considered a simple genetic disease because it's mutations in a single gene. But it actually is quite complicated. And you can really see the complexity when you see that, you know, different mutations do different things to this one single protein. And you need different drugs that are based on, that are specific to the mutation in order to treat the disease. And I think, you know, that's an example of personalized medicine. And one of the very first examples of drugs designed to match a mutation um, you know, that, and so it's a real first in medicine. Yes. And it's a really crucial point that, uh, that you brought up. It's one gene, but it's many, many, many different mutations. So from the diagnostic point of view, how our approach has changed from all of the biochemical methods, what do we use nowadays? Um, well, you know, the, the interesting thing is that the gold standard test was actually developed in the 1940s by an Italian immigrant by the name of Paul de San Ignese. And um, he came to New York and um, he was working with Dorothy Anderson. And one day in the 40s, when there was this terrible, terrible heat wave, um, he came into the hospital and he found uh, that four, uh, actually about six of his patients who were little kids, Dr. San Ignese was a pediatrician, Six of the kids that he he frequently treated had suffered from heat exhaustion, and they were they were in the clinic waiting for rehydration salts and and liquids. And you know he thought, okay, that's that's weird. Um, it's weird that my CFPA patients are all getting heat exhaustion, but he kind of forgot about that within a couple of days mm. until it happened the next year. And he noticed that, you know, um, a child who had taken a sip of water from a glass, the, the, the fingerprints that they had left on the glass were salty. So they had left these ghostly white fingerprints on the water glass. And he realized that, you know, these kids are losing salt in, you know, much more quickly than, than children without this disease. So it became known as the sweat test. And it basically was testing how salty is your sweat 
compared to children without the disease. And um, for children with this disease, their salt um, levels were six or seven times higher than in other children. And so that, you know, and, and when you kiss these children, um, you could taste the salt on your lips. And parents mm. had actually commented that, you know, they, their children tasted salty when kissed. Um, and so that was one of the earliest tests for this disease. And it is still one of the gold standard tests. But in addition to the, the sweat test, as it's called, they also look at the gene. They will sequence the gene to see which mutation you carry. And that's been really, um, that's really thanks to the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation that um, created a registry of all their patients and encouraged them to get tested. So to find out what their mutations were so that the foundation could give that information, not directly, um, but give the information to drug companies and say, you know, we need a drug that will fix this mutation, you know, so that when the drug company developed something, they would know which patients should be given this drug, or at least enrolled in clinical trials to see if a particular drug would work. So now the tests are, you know, twofold, salt test, sweat test, and um, a gene sequence of their gene to figure out exactly what mutation they have. And uh, can you do genetic testing uh, for the recessive gene of parents, uh, for Absolutely. example, during family planning? Mm. Yes. Um, and in, in Caucasian um, families, when the, when the parents are of West European descent, um, that is normally recommended during um, prenatal screening. Um, the thing that is interesting now is because there are a lot of um, children with mixed racial backgrounds is you sometimes don't know or don't screen the parents ahead of time. For example, um, there are now an increasing number of African-American children who have cystic fibrosis. Now, looking at the parents, you might not suspect that they were susceptible to this disease, but back in the history of those parents, you know, there was, you know, mixed parentage that brought the Caucasian line and the African-American bloodlines together. And so, you know, you can't quite tell who might develop this disease. Um, it, it's not restricted by race. So in most cases, parents are of European descent are asked, you know, have you ever had, you know, this disease in your family? Has anybody died of um, lung disease at a very young age? And often stories will trickle down. And, you know, if the person wasn't diagnosed, you know, they may say, oh, yeah, I had an uncle that died of pneumonia um, or an aunt that died of pneumonia, or my cousin died when they were just two years old. And when the when physicians hear those type of stories, um, those parents, it's often recommended that they have prenatal screening for, for cystic fibrosis. So now from the early days, what treatments were available and how uh, we developed novel treatments? Oh, the early treatments were, were pretty... Uh, were pretty brutal. 
Um, mm. One of the one of the things that was important for for children early on um, was to to get the mucus out of their lungs um, because otherwise they would basically suffocate. Um, the bacteria would colonize the lungs. The mucus would thicken. Their lungs would basically disintegrate with all this infection, and they couldn't breathe. So what the parents had to do was put the children on their stomach in sort of a prone position, which is sort of um, tilted downwards. And the parents would have to thump the back and the sides of the ribs in the in sort of a uh, the rhythm of a galloping horse almost, and and thump the the airways to to shake the to shake the mucus out of the lungs so that the children could cough it up. Um, if you think of how you hit um, and thump a bottle of ketchup to get the thick ketchup out of the bottom of the the bottle, the, or mm. any any condiment, if you think of how you have to thump it. That's basically what the parents had to do for their children, not just once a day, but up to three times a day for an hour each time to loosen the mucus up in their lungs so that they could spit it up and, and keep their lungs clear. Um, so that was one of the earliest treatments. Um, another early treatment was they had to take um, oral pancreatic enzymes. So because the pancreas wasn't working and you couldn't get those digestive enzymes um, to digest their food, they had to take them orally. So those were often mixed with things like applesauce or some of their other foods and the kids would eat them. And with these enzymes, which would have to be taken with every meal, they were able to digest their food and they started to get more nutrients. So that was also key. Um, and then after the war, when antibiotics became um, available to the general population, various types of antibiotics were available for patients um, to kill the infections in their lungs. And you know, some are more some are more effective than others. But you know, a side effect of a lot of um, um, antibiotics is toxicity and it would affect the hearing of the children. And, and, you know, a side effect was it caused deafness. So the antibiotics had to be used carefully. Um, so that's pretty much all there was until about the mid eighties. And then early in the, uh, nineties, um, there was a new treatment called Pulmazyme, and that was made by Genentech. And Pulmazyme was this amazing enzyme that you could um, inhale into the lungs, and it would basically liquefy all that mucus so that, you know, all the parents had up until that point was, you know, this physical therapy, which is called, you know, chest percussion, the, the thumping on the chest and the back. But with this new drug called Pulmazine, children and young adults could inhale this enzyme into the lungs. It would liquefy the mucus, and then they could cough it up by themselves a lot more easily. Um, it didn't negate the need for physical therapy and percussive therapy, but it it sure made it easier. Um, so that was 
that was a real, real jump in therapies. And then also during the, um, during the 90s, they developed um, an antibiotic that could be inhaled into the lungs. Um, and that was great because you weren't subjecting the entire body to the antibiotic. And so you could give a, a much stronger dose to the lungs but restrict it from everywhere else, which was also very important in protecting children from the, the bad side effects of antibiotics. Um, so that's what we had until, you know, the breakthrough came with cystic fibrosis. So, yeah, of course, uh, we needed a revolution really in treating this uh, disease. So you mentioned earlier the term personalized medicine. Can you tell us how it, um, how the cystic fibrosis itself actually serves as a really good example of the success for the treatment of genetic diseases? Well, it was, it's interesting because, you know, cystic fibrosis, here it was, you know, you could really predict um, with some accuracy which children were going to develop the disease by looking at the transmission of the disease in their family. Sometimes you would have records going back to grandparents or great-grandparents and be able to see which children had the disease. And you could see which children might be suspected of having the disease. You know, they might be a carrier. Um, so once the gene was found, which was in 1989, you could test children for the mutation. And what was interesting was that, you know, children who had two copies of the worst mutation, I mean, those children were really, really sick. And they had a protein that just, you know, it couldn't be helped. And, you know, one of the things that they, they tried to do immediately after discovering the gene was gene therapy, which was really big in the 1990s. Because in some animals, it had been shown that if you have a broken gene, you could fix the disease, you could essentially cure it by giving back the, a healthy version of that broken gene and giving it back to the animal. So there were examples with a disease called um, familial hypercholesterolemia. And these and animals with this disease had really high cholesterol and would get strokes and heart attacks. But they found that when they gave a good version of the gene, that could be that could be cured. So once the cystic fibrosis gene was discovered, scientists were very excited because they thought, okay, if we just give them a healthy version of this gene inside their lungs, then they should get better. This should be a cure. Um, so they tried to do that and basically tried to wrap a, the healthy gene, a little piece of DNA wrapped up in a virus that didn't cause disease. And they used the virus, which was a cold virus, to get the gene into the lungs, into the right cells. And they showed that, you know, if you could do that, then the cells that received this healthy gene would actually make that healthy protein and it would do its job and it would fix the disease. The problem was that you couldn't get enough of the gene into the patient's lungs to actually create a therapeutic benefit. So 
you know, it was a huge, huge disappointment to the field, to scientists. And they realized that, you know, gene therapy is really going to be a lot trickier than we had imagined, you know, and it was devastating for the community because, you know, they, they said, you know, we found the gene. It was one of the first human disease genes to be found. We've tried gene therapy. It failed. What else can we do? And, and really, there was a, a, a very harsh reckoning. People thought, you know, this disease is incurable. We'll never be able to fix it. But then one of the leaders of the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation um, came up with an idea that was a pretty radical idea. He said, okay, we can't get the gene into the cells, but what if we can fix the broken protein that is already being made in the cells? What if we can find a drug that might be able to refold it and get it into the into shape so that chloride can come in and out? And so what happened was they found... Um, a biotech company, a little biotech company in San Diego that was willing to take on the challenge. And what they discovered that, you know, was that you couldn't have a one drug fits all situation, that there were different groups of mutations. Some mutations um, crushed this donut shaped protein in a way that you really needed to reinflate it and open it up so that that passageway was open. Other mutations were so severe that you never got that donut to the outside of the cell. So they realized mm. then that they would need lots of categories of drugs to, to match the mutations to help all of these patients. And the, the mutations were sort of grouped into categories. And the scientists from, you know, it was first called Aurora uh, Biosciences, and that was bought by a company called Vertex Pharmaceuticals. And the scientists at Vertex basically said, you know, we think we can find a molecule that will basically refold the protein, get it into better shape, and move it to the right place in the cell where it can do its job. And um, it was about eight years of, of very, very heavy science and building molecules atom by atom to, to find the perfect drugs. Um, you know, it took that amount of effort before they even started clinical trials for the first drug. Um, but it, it's been a, a wild success story because, you know, of the, of the patients that have this disease, now there are um, drugs for 90% of them. 90% of patients have a drug that matches their mutation. Um, now the story of the remaining 10%, that, that is another challenge in and, in and of itself, which is ongoing. And, uh, you know, that's going to take a lot of work to, to figure out a treatment for those patients. But, you know, the idea that you could fix a broken protein that had never been done before. It was a first in the history of medicine and it's exciting because there are other diseases with broken, misfolded proteins, um, Huntington's, Alzheimer's, and these are diseases that affect tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people. And when I say that, I'm talking about Alzheimer's. Um, so now people are, are starting to wonder, okay, if you can fix 
a broken protein in cystic fibrosis, maybe that approach will work for other diseases. So it's really, it's really, um, you know, path-breaking medicine and science that um, has been launched by this, you know, little foundation and for this rare disease. And I find that juxtaposition really fascinating. Yes, for sure. And uh, of course, the treatment doesn't only consist of this amazing scientific part. Or you, you cannot argue that uh, this advances is just really, really good. But it also requires acceptance of the uh, society. It also needs uh, infrastructure to be implemented. So uh, from the journalistic point of view, what do you see that we need to convey to public, perhaps? Uh, so the acceptance of the genetic treatments is a little bit better. I think one of the things that the cystic fibrosis did really well and, and early on was for the patients and the families, they started to collect DNA and they had a patient registry, which was really, which was really quite um, prescient. They, they, um, they started a registry of their patients in, in the early 1960s. And they did this because they realized that, you know, here, what they're, here they had a rare disease Nobody had heard of it. They didn't know much about it. So they wanted to collect all the data on all the patients in a centralized location so that they could say to scientists, hey, you know, we, we have this database. We have all this patient data. If you study this disease, we can give you samples from the patients. We can give you access to their DNA. We can um, arrange trials. We can help the studies, we can provide funding. So what they did was they really centralized their resources and their constituents trusted them with this registry. So they, I mean, you know, there's a lot of opposition to sharing genetic data and health data. But what happened in this case was that information was key to enabling scientists to study this disease, to make breakthroughs, to understand that there were groups of certain mutations, that certain mutations were associated with certain symptoms. Um, so I think one huge lesson is, is the importance of genetic registries and health registries for particular diseases. And when a population is struggling with a particular disease, this is, this is a great thing that a foundation can do is start a registry of all the patients. The other really key thing that the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation did was rather than there being, you know, 10 cystic fibrosis groups all fundraising and doing the same thing, they consolidated. They realized they didn't want to have this redundancy. They were going to have one foundation for this one disease. And within that foundation, they were going to figure out the best science to fund. You know, they were going to launch um, science centers around the country at universities that only studied this disease. So it was a very, very focused approach. Um, so first they had the registry to get the patients on board. Then they established research centers to get scientists consolidated and working on the problem exclusively. 
And then the, the third part of the equation that I think is very important, and we've kind of seen this with um, COVID trials, is that they said to the patients, if you want, if you want drugs for cystic fibrosis, then you need to participate in the medical research. And so there are very few cystic fibrosis patients um, that haven't participated in medical research. They know that they have to participate in clinical trials if they eventually want drugs from themselves and their friends and their family. And I think that that willingness to step up is something that actually you know, it it would help on a national level. It would help on a local level for diseases. And I think, you know, when we saw the registries start up for COVID vaccines, people stepped up and they volunteered to take the vaccine during the clinical trials. And I think, you know, when it comes to other diseases, people have to be willing to step up. Healthy people need to be willing to enter phase one safety trials to see whether those drugs are safe. And people with the disease have to be trusting enough to to take those drugs while they're being tested. So I think, you know, it's a big step, but having seen an example in which it ran so efficiently and so quickly, um, you know, it really makes me believe that that public health registries, genetic registries can do a lot of good for medical research and for accelerating the path to um, treatments and, and cures. Yes, for sure. And it's really good that uh, cystic fibrosis sort of provides this really good template on how it can be approached that, uh, um, that, that we can use to uh, target other genetic diseases, perhaps. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's, you know, it's not even just genetic diseases. I mean, when you look at things like diabetes, um, you know, the same model is being used by the Diabetes Foundation in a way, because one of the other things that I didn't mention that was very unique about this whole effort was the way that the research was funded. And the way that was, was a, a strategy called venture philanthropy. So the foundation raised donations through philanthropic um, donations, and they used this money to invest in biotech companies. And in the arrangement that they had with those biotech companies, they said, all right, we will give you the money to do all the research to come up with some drug candidates. We will fund all of that early research. But you know, once it gets to a certain stage, you're going to take over the research. And if you develop a successful drug that goes to market, then we're going to get some royalties back. We will get some royalties for the drugs that you are able to sell. And we will invest those royalties in more research so that it becomes a self-sustaining research engine um, for that particular disease. And I know that um, there are diabetes foundations in the US that are doing this. They're using venture philanthropy to, to launch new research into treatments for, particularly for juvenile diabetes. So your eight years research culminated in this captivating story, Breath from Salt. <laughs> so I was just wondering, how did you come up with the title? Oh, the, <laughs> you know, um, 
if you look at cystic fibrosis textbooks, they are they have horrible titles. And um, I knew from my love of reading um, narrative nonfiction science books that I wanted a really beautiful title. I wanted something that sounded hopeful and interesting. And basically, you know, cystic fibrosis is caused by an imbalance in your salt. And this whole disease is, and this whole book is about how to get that breath back, um, how to save the breath and how to restore the lungs. And so breath from salt was, was sort of the, the title we um, came up with. Um, and I, I really, it was important to me that it was a pretty title. I didn't want something like the history of cystic fibrosis because, you know, the book mm-hmm. is a lot more than that. It, it's stories and roadmaps that I think will be um, very helpful for, for people suffering from a range of diseases and, and also people who are just interested in, in knowing about medical history in the last 50 years because there's an enormous transformation that's happened. You know, the book talks about gene hunting and the international race to find the, the cystic fibrosis gene. It talks about gene therapy. It talks about finding ways to fix broken proteins. So it really is sort of a portrait of medicine in the last 50 years. Um, so it's, you know, it's filled with hope. And I think, you know, breath with breath, there is hope. Um, so that's that's kind of the genesis of the the title. Yeah, that's a great story in itself. <laughs> so uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I would like to ask, what are you currently working on? Oh, <laughs> all my time right now is as an editor at National Geographic, um, focusing on the COVID pandemic, which has just devastated, you know, the globe and. Um, you know, I'm focusing right now on the the pandemic and its its bludgeoning effect on India. Uh, so that's my immediate concern. Um, but I I do have plans to keep covering cystic fibrosis and a couple of other genetic diseases where I I feel that there's a a wonderful hopeful story to be told. Yes, very important work around COVID nowadays, of course. So uh, where can our listeners find more information about your work and the book? Oh, well, I'm extremely easy to track down. <laughs> My website <laughs> is bijaltrevedi.com, and that is B-I-J-A-L-Trevedi, which is spelled T like Tom, R-I, V like Victor, E like Edward, D like David, I dot com. So www.vigiltrevedi.com. And you can find out anything and you can reach me personally through email. And um, I would love to hear from from readers and anyone who's interested. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a really illuminating discussion about the, the disease. Thank you. It's been It's been such fun to talk about this story with you.